0: You know, people come back week after week for, for the social connections, for the community connections, and and all the benefits that go along with that. So not, you know, obviously you run 5K, theoretically you're going to get fitter, you're going to get stronger, lose weight, etc. But the friendships, it's about the mental health. It's about feeling good and feeling happy, uh, you know, health health and happiness. And our, our global mission uh, has evolved. You know, the original mission was around uh, – helping volunteers deliver a five kilometer run in any community that wanted one. That was the original mission, which was really a, a call to action around growth. You know, we want we want to put more events out there. But we've realized that that's not the driver. The driver is, is health and happiness. So the mission now is around creating a healthier and happier planet.
1: Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders and next level gurus. This is the active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong. And now your hosts, Craig Johns and Ben Gathercole.
2: On this episode of the Active CEO podcast, we speak with a charismatic CEO who is inspired to build a healthier and happier planet for his kids, has created a movement that has seen people run 38,771,680 kilometers and counting, and is a proud mental health advocate. Our guest has a Bachelor of Applied Science in Human Movement Studies and Bachelor of Education in secondary education teaching from the Queensland University of Technology and a master's of business administration from the Herit Watt University. His career has included the roles of managing director of the tour man, managing director of the celebrity planet, president of active and healthy Alliance Gold Coast, CEO and founder of Parkrun Australia, and has recently commenced a role as Strategic Director Asia-Pacific of Parkrun International. I'm pleased to introduce to you a successful entrepreneur, devoted father, passionate CrossFit athlete, an anxiety sufferer, and a man who is driven to move a nation. Tim Oberg. Tim, welcome to the show.
0: Craig, thanks for having me. And I don't think I've ever had an introduction like that before, but uh, I'll take it.
2: <laughs> oh, That's good to hear. So let's take a trip down memory lane. Were you the kind of kid that raced around on his BMX and jumped at any sense of challenge and adventure?
0: Yeah, that's it. and uh, you know, You've know, you nailed it with the BMX. I mean, I, I grew up in – so I was born in 1978, so I'm a child of the 80s, and any, any uh, Aussie kid who is about my age will remember the movie BMX Bandits. I certainly was, uh, do. <laughs> Nicole Kidman's uh, big break in, in, in movies, so if any listeners haven't, um, haven't ever seen Nicole Kidman with the full perm – uh then BMX Bandits was the one so so look that came out when I was probably about five or six years old and um and that had uh essentially a, a BMX boom I, I, I remember it so I remember getting my first BMX bike uh for Christmas around that time and so yeah absolutely there was a, a BMX track actually around the corner from my house so a lot of my uh, youth was spent riding my BMX around and and yeah, just generally being active um and look, there wasn't anything else to do in those days, you know, we didn't have, there wasn't all the temptations of screens and everything that, uh, that exist, uh, you know, for children today. So yeah, had a very active childhood, didn't really play much in the way of organized sport. Uh, it was much more in terms of just being active and moving and having fun and playing with all the kids in the neighborhood.
2: So, you know, being really active, um, did you ever get a chance to kind of sit down and relax a little bit and, and see what your future may look like and what did you dream about?
0: Well, not not as a kid. I don't think anyone does. I don't think any any uh, any youngster really sits down and e- even thinks about what's going on and what life's about and, and whatnot. But I, 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 I clearly do remember, though, probably when I was about, I reckon about 14, I had an inkling that, um, I wanted to go to university and, and study something in sport. And, uh, and I found out that that degree was called, uh, human movement, uh, studies. Uh, and so from that point, I actually was able to select, you know, the subjects at school that were going to get me into that degree. So yeah, I reckon I would have been 14 or 15 when I had a, uh, I, I, certainly a, a desire to go in that go down that path and, and really that was just like in any sport loving kid you think well what am i going to do well, i'd love you know i love sport i'd probably like to work in sport one day um you know i was naive i didn't know about i didn't know what other jobs i guess were around so i just thought i'm going to work in sport somehow um so so yeah so i think around that time i, I, I sort of was starting to think okay that's what i want to do
2: Brilliant. And so, you studied education there as well. Did you utilize that to be a peer teacher or, or what were your first kind of roles?
0: Yeah. So, I come from a family of teachers. My my father and mother and also my older brother are all teachers. Um, I wasn't originally going down the teaching strand when I was at uni. I actually started off my uni at uh, the University of Queensland where the degree was uh, a sole human movement degree so applied science and human movements. Um, I was there for about a year and a half and there were sort of two things happening. One was I was really partying too much, uh, as happens at uni. Um, And I wasn't failing anything, but I certainly wasn't uh, achieving what I thought I could achieve academically. Um, and then I also found out that if I went, if I switched over to QUT, the Queensland University of Technology for the same amount of time, I would actually graduate with a, a double degree. Uh, so, so, so I, 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 thought, well, I may as well, uh, get two for the price of one, so to speak. So, so I switched over to QUT where I, where I was able to get a, a human movement degree and an education degree. I mean, I always thought the education degree was going to be kind of my backup, so to speak. Um, however, in the last year that I was at uni, uh, we, we had a number of, um, teaching recruitment agencies come and talk to us about opportunities to teach overseas. Um, and I quite liked the sound of that. So I ended up graduating, uh, and moving to London, uh, and we were enticed with the prospect of a hundred pounds a day, which, uh, we all sat there with our calculators going, oh, that's about $300, and we thought, that sounds pretty good. So, yeah, so we were enticed with, uh, you know, the 100 pounds a day, and uh, so I moved to London to teach uh, in early 2001, I actually arrived in London on Australia Day, 2001, uh, sort of, you know, bright-eyed and ready to go. Um, so, yeah, with, uh, with the, the thought that I was going to teach for two years and return home. Uh, which is not what happened. I uh, I taught for the first year and um, came home for Christmas because I had a return airfare that had to be used up and then went back and I uh, re- re- responded to an advertisement to be a, a tour guide on uh, European bus tours. Uh, now, I hadn't even really done much travel in Europe at that point, but, um, you know, the, the ad was you know, to go and be trained to be a a tour guide. And, you know, I certainly had a lot of desires to travel and I thought, okay, well, tour guiding and teaching, it's kind of the same thing really. Yeah. You're standing up in front of a group and you're presenting information and making sure it's understood and so on and so forth. So, um, so I started, so, so, so I was trained to be a tour guide and then I, for the rest of that year, I, I worked for various companies doing little short trips to Europe and you know, taking, um, it was quite funny because I hadn't even been to half the countries that I was taking tour buses to, but what I, what I found was the bus drivers knew everything. They knew where they knew where, what was what and where was where. So the driver would say to me, oh, you know, coming up is whatever the landmark was and I'd pull out the Lonely Planet. We'd, it was sort of, you know, without anyone noticing because I'm sitting right at the front on the sort of tour guide's jump seat, and uh, I'd start spieling from the lonely planet uh, like I was a, the uh, the authority on wherever we were. So, so that was that was really good fun, and um, I did that for the for the sort of 2002, and ended up uh, working for an Aussie bloke who had his own business and he was returning to Australia for a few months. He said, do you want to run the business while I'm away? And I said, yeah, why not? And he said, I could house sit. So I got free rent for, for a few months. And um, I just found, I found that really enjoyable and I thought, okay, well, that wasn't too bad. So when he got back, I decided I was going to break off and do my own thing. So I set up my own business uh, in, in early 2003. Um, it was a, you, you, uh, you. You rightly referred to it as the Tour man in the in the intro. There originally it was called Tim the Tour Man, uh, which was because you know that was around the time that um, uh, Home Improvement with uh, Tim Allen or Tim the Tool Man was uh, a very big TV show. And so I'd actually been nicknamed that. People on my tours were nicknaming me Tim the Tim the Tool Man, and uh, and so my business became Tim the Tool Man, which sort of in time evolved to the tour man, but, um, yeah, so I started up this business in 2003 and, and that kept me in, in the UK for the next seven years, uh, doing that and various other little offshoots of that. And yeah, so it's funny the way the world works, eh?
2: <laughs> Certainly does. Now I'm very curious to know more about the Guinness world record attempt for the largest pub crawl ever held, which is, is such an Aussie thing to do. <laughs> yeah, it is. So,
0: so I guess the, uh, so the, the business, the Tim the Tourman business kind of had two sides to it. One was uh, events that were sort of London based and then the other side to it was the European tours. So there's sort of two distinct uh, sides of the business. But what, the way it kind of worked was um, I would organize these events in London that we would get lots of people on. Uh, and then they would then become the customers that would come on the European tours where there wasn't, you know, the volume wasn't as much, but it was, um, you know, it was consistent, I guess. Um, so the, the, the this all kind of spawned out from the idea of the Monopoly pub crawl. And uh, I'm sure, you know, again, Aussie kids growing up in the 80s, we played Monopoly. Uh, and I'm sure they probably still do today. I don't know. But uh you know, so so we play in Australia. We play the the uh, the British Monopoly board. So your your Old Kent Road and your Whitechapel and your Paul Mall and or Pall Mall as they call it overseas, call it over there. Um, and so so the concept of the Monopoly pub crawl isn't something that I made up. It was which is you know visit a pub on every every uh, every little property on the Monopoly board. But I guess I commercialised it while I was there. I I actually made it an organised uh, event. So on uh, kind of like the first Saturday of the month uh, I'd have you know anywhere between 300 and 700 people turn up to do this uh, Monopoly pub crawl which was great fun uh, met heaps of fantastic people lots of people I'm still friends with today from from meeting them over there ironically lots of them uh, are probably now in their 30s and 40s and doing parkrun which is pretty funny because uh, <laughs> in their 20s they were in London I was getting and I was getting them drunk and now I'm getting them fit but um, yeah, so, so we started off with this Monopoly pub crawl concept and then um, around that, oh, it must have been a couple of years later, um, I read a news article about um, the town of Rockhampton here in, in Queensland um, setting the Guinness world record for a pub crawl. They, I think they do it on... Um, well, they did it on Queen's birthday weekend, I'm pretty sure, which is actually coming up, isn't it, in a couple of months, but we're um, in a month. Um, so I read about that and I thought, oh, the number wasn't that big. It was maybe about, I don't know, 1,500 people or something like that. And I thought, world record, 1,500 people. I thought, we can probably do that. So I spoke to all the venues that I used for the Monopoly pub crawl and most of them had kind of like sister venues around London that were keen to be involved. So we ended up getting about probably about 50, 50 pubs involved. Um, and everybody met up in the morning in Trafalgar Square. So we ended up having, um, oh, the number escapes me. It's, uh, it's, it's written on my profile. It's about 2000 people or something like that. Uh, so we ended up having about 2000 people in Trafalgar Square on, on the Saturday morning. Um, some fantastic photos of like me selfieing with like 2,000 people in the background all ready to ready to go pub crawling and then and then in, in sort of like uh, I think we split them into something like 19 groups of 150 or something like that um, so we just so basically it was like 19 mini pub crawls all going on um, sort of like clockwise in a clockwise direction you know around London uh, so we never had everyone in the same pub at the same time you know that just wasn't it wasn't doable and it also wasn't the format that was required by Guinness. So, we, yeah, we just we just had people pub crawling around and then at the end of the day they had to drop their cards in a box and um, we collected them all up. And, yeah, it's, it's safe to say not everyone finished. So the number that we had at the start of the day <laughs> isn't the number that actually became the world record number. Um, but it was, a, it was a massive day and, um, yeah, it got us in the Guinness Book of World Records. You know, it's since, that's since been broken by someone else. I don't know who's got that record now, but... Um, yeah, it certainly was a bit of a, a landmark day in terms of my business uh, career in London. Uh, it certainly made a few waves. I had had the um, city of London police calling me, wondering what was going on, and <laughs> things like that. And uh, you know, I, and you know, I, I think I used the word naive earlier. I mean, I was I was naive that day. I mean, you know, we didn't have any sort of risk management or any sort of specific insurance on the day. It was you know, turn up and hope for the best and you know, I was a bit young and stupid and you know, certainly I wouldn't uh, ever attempt to run a big event like that now. But uh, but you know, sometimes that's just the way you gotta do it to get things done. And uh, you know, we had a, we had a ball and uh, I still have people who come up and talk to me about it today and um, we have a good laughs. So yeah, big day.
2: <laughs> Brilliant. Now you had another uh, business called the Celebrity Planet, which for most people probably straight to their mind would be a reality TV show. Uh, what was, you know, quickly, what was that one about before we sort of delve into your leadership aspect? Yeah.
0: So that sort of spawned off the back of the the London based events. Uh, I I met, I met a guy, an English guy, uh, James Bonney, uh, who had spent a fair bit of time in LA and he, you know, when you go to LA, you can do those bus tours of celebrity homes and there's the maps of, you know, this is where Marilyn Monroe lived or whatever it would be. Uh, and he brought that concept back to London, and he created uh, London's first kind of celebrity map. Uh, and so I I saw the map, and I uh, I contacted him, and he he was already sort of hatching up an idea that the next you know the next business venture after the map was a tour. Um, and so because I had the sort of tour experience, we we, we joined forces and. Um, and came up with this idea of Celebrity Planet, which was to, you know, basically do celebrity homes, movie locations, and so on around around London. So, we had a, a number of different tour products that were, some were walking tours, some were bus tours. Um, we actually uh, took Getaway, Jules Lund, when he used to be on Getaway, they came over and I took him on a James Bond tour of, of London, which was pretty pretty fun. Um, we also went on the dragon's Den which is um, for those who don't know it's kind of like it's very similar to the shark tank um, so I went on the, the UK version of the dragon's Den pitching the idea to kind of grow the business we got nowhere we got got kicked out straight away because I think they, they were they are were, they were essentially four celebrities we're pitching to to say hey we want to go check out celebrity homes they're like don't invade my privacy but, um yeah, so that was that was really fun, and uh, it, it sort of showed me a different side of, of London as well in terms of some of the history that I hadn't really delved into before. Re- some really really interesting stuff. One one of the um, interesting points that I still actually talk about sometimes today is that when um, when Jimi Hendrix uh, overdosed in London, he was taken and, and died. He was taken to a hospital in Chelsea, and the doctor that actually uh, you know filled in his death certificate was bob brown who's now was the leader of the greens here in australia so he you know he was working as a doctor in london in the 60s and 70s and so he was the doctor who who did that and you know he obviously was in the news a bit earlier this year with his uh, environmental convoy that was coming up uh, the queensland coast but um yeah so just a really interesting tidbit of uh you know he's obviously not known for that he's known for being a leader of the green party and an environmentalist but um uh, but yeah, he in my head he's the guy that signed the, the death certificate for Jimi Hendrix, <laughs> which is pretty funny.
2: So your businesses and your early career so far, just sounds like uh, one big game and have a lot of fun yeah. and entertainment. What was the biggest learning curve for you in leading businesses? You know, in those early career or those early years of your career?
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, I went in with no experience. You know, I was I was a teacher, so. I, I did. I did uh, have my own business when I was in university. I, I ran uh, my own mobile DJ business. Um, so I did have a, an entrepreneurial background. I did that for sort of three or four years and paid my way through uni with that. Um, but yeah, coming into the business or uh, starting the business in London, in you know one of the biggest cities, one of the biggest economies in the world, uh, you know, it was really like throwing myself in the deep end. And as as I mentioned before, you know, I was very naive about a lot of things. You know about uh, insurances and risk and tax and all these sorts of things that, you know, for a while you just try and ignore them and then you realize actually you can't, you, if you're going to be legitimate, you've got to, got to look at all this stuff. So, so it was, it was like a, a real world MBA in many ways, you know, I was learning as I went, uh, I met some really great people that were able to sort of advise me and mentor me along the way. Um, you know, there's no one thing that I would highlight because really I knew nothing and learn everything. Well when well, I say learn everything, we've <laughs> still got more to learn, but you know, ev- everything I was doing I was learning on the fly. So so I guess maybe a lesson there is, you know, sometimes you've just got to throw yourself in the deep end and just have a crack. And uh, you know, I think you can you can wait around and you can try and not start a business or not launch your website until it's perfect or whatever it might be, but you know on the other hand you just got to get in there and have a crack and you can you can learn a bit on the way so so i guess yeah it was a, a, a baptism of fire a, you know i look back on it um you know extremely fondly like I, I met my my wife uh you know running the business and you know we're now back here with three kids um made so many great friendships learned so many good lessons sometimes some hard lessons but mostly good lessons along the way i uh, got to see things, see places and have experiences that I would have otherwise never had the opportunity to do. So, um, yeah, it was, a, it was like a golden period in my life. That's for sure.
2: So, was to ask your wife about your leadership style. How would she define it?
0: My leadership? Well, she's the boss in the house, so there's no leadership at home. That's for sure. She's, she's in charge, but oh, look, I look at the end of the day, like I'm a people person and that's, that's my style is it's a people first style you know I don't I don't know everything and I never pretend that I do um, but what I try and do is bring in people who do know uh, more than me uh, and they know about the areas where I'm weakest and I, I try and use my I guess enthusiasm, uh, and to, to bring them on the journey with me. Uh, so, and, you know, park runs the classic example. We're going to talk about that in a minute, but, you know, starting that with just myself and now we've got, uh, you know, 10 staff and thousands of volunteers and, you know, you've, you've really got to be able to translate your passion, translate your enthusiasm to, to bring people on the journey with you and, 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 and not, you know, not be afraid to bring in people that are better than you. And, you know, I think that's the most important thing. I look at you know, everyone who's in my team and they're all doing things better than when I used to do it all on my own for sure. Like I, I did everything okay, but now I've got people who do it really, really well. And that's a big difference.
2: So talking about uh, Parkrun in 2010, you took the initiative to meet with founder Paul Sinton Hewitt in London. <laughs> what, what caught your attention about Parkrun and your desire to bring it to Australia?
0: Yeah, so what what brought, caught my attention was uh i i used to run we we, we we adopted a dog when we were there um we lived in we lived in montenegro for six months in a little town called kotor which for those that don't know montenegro it's part of the ex-yugoslavia it's just on the bolt uh, on the on the adriatic coast underneath croatia so we were there for six months i was doing some consultancy work for a, a tourism business um and we, we adopted this stray dog and uh, at the same time i was kind of just getting into running I'd um, always run a little bit just to keep fit. Um, but I was, I decided I was going to train for a marathon. So we found this dog and he, he, I actually really bonded with him because he would come out on my runs with me, you know, not on the lead. He would just run along beside me and, and whatever. So long story short, we, we, we found this dog. Um, he became my best running buddy. When we moved back to London, we, we brought the dog, um, smuggling him through customs is a whole nother story we'll leave that for a different podcast um but um yeah got the dog back to london and then and then yeah he was just my training partner and i was always out running with him and um i was in a local triathlon club uh and someone said to me uh it was in 2010 they said well did you know that you can actually take your dog to this 5k event it's a free event you can take your dog run with him on the lead and you'll get a time and and I thought, oh, that sounds really cool because you know I really had a, a, a strong bond with this with this animal. His name is Clarence, uh, and so I took Clarence along to Wimbledon Common Park Run, did my did my first one, and um, yeah, it was pretty much hooked. I thought this is brilliant. Like, what a great atmosphere um you know I wasn't uh you know I wasn't then and I'm still not now and what you would consider a runner in in uh inverted commas yeah uh, rather I'm, I'm someone who likes to run but I'm, I'm not a runner uh in the, in the in the sort of elite sense of the word uh and, and I found a run a place where you didn't actually have to be you could just go along and have a have a crack and you know t- go out for a coffee afterwards with the with the people who were there so so park run appealed to me instantly I thought it was really good at at the time you know as we've Disgust I've been working in travel and events for seven or eight years and I was just a little bit over it I mean, I, I loved every minute of it, but my liver was uh, Probably needing me to take a break. There was a lot of drinking involved uh, and whatnot And it was just really, you know looking at where I wanted to be in the future That's not what I wanted to be doing. Oh, you know I knew we were gonna move to Australia and have kids and you know with that I needed to have something that was a lot more stable a lot more uh you know less less of being in that sort of party environment and travel environment so i knew i wanted to get out of that and you know ideally i wanted to get back to doing what was my original plan back when i was 14 and 15 which was working in sport uh now i didn't know what that was going to look like um and i didn't think parkrun was going to be the thing that it was what it was going to be but i thought well parkrun would certainly Appeal to Aussies, you know we've got the the great outdoor environment and beautiful places to run and whatnot. So I thought if I if 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 Parkrun was successful with me as a volunteer, it would it would lead me to uh, growing my sort of business network in in that space uh, and could potentially lead to a job. So that was my my thinking at the time. It was like yeah, not that Parkrun was going to be the thing, but that it would be a gateway to something. So. I reached out to Parkrun through the the Parkrun website. I didn't know Paul, I didn't know who Paul was at the time, but um you know Paul the founder um got in touch and we met up and had a coffee and got on really well. Uh and we discussed, you know, the idea of of Australia and he said that they were in a position to support that. Um you know a couple of couple of weeks went by and we met up again and And we decided we were going to do it. Uh, You know, well, Paul decided he'd let me do it, should we say. Uh, So he granted, we we came up with the first sort of park run international license. Uh, At that point, there there hadn't been any sort of agreements like that with any international, you know, any any international territories. Um, So we came up with that. uh, And then... Yeah, I guess uh, I left the UK in December of 2010. I uh, went to South Africa where my wife's from and we got married there and then ended up on the Gold Coast in January 2011. Uh, and that's that's how it all kind of spawned from there. Yeah, we, uh, we launched the first event in April
2: 2011. Yeah. So to give people some context here, Parkrun is now the largest mass participation sporting activity on the planet. Yeah. In Australia alone, there have been 62,765 events organized by 365 locations involving 589,122 runners who have completed 38,771,680 kilometers. The average person has attended 13.2 park runs. In my eyes, that is one hell of a phenomenal success. For you yeah. what yeah. makes Park run so successful week after week?
0: So look, when it started and when, when I got involved it was it was more like it was about the run it was about you know come and you know this is somewhere you can come and get a 5k you can get a time and you can get fit and you can meet other people and get fit with them and uh, maybe do a, a 10k or a half marathon so the, the focus originally was sort of around running and getting fit and, and so on. But what we've seen over the years is that that's not why people come back. Because uh, you can run anywhere, anytime. You yeah, you can do, I could, you know, we, I could walk out my office now and run 5K. Um, it was, far, so it's far less about the actual run and far more about the community connections that were being created. Uh, and so we're, you know, we're seeing people of all ages, all abilities coming together to do this thing. Now the thing they're doing is run or walk 5k or volunteer. So they're doing this thing. Uh, but what they're actually doing is they're just making friends. It's a friendship thing. You know, you're making friends with new people in your community. You're, you're reconnecting with friends and family who you may not have seen for a while, or you may not have even just seen for the week. You know, a lot of people, you know, park runs their Saturday catch up because they're, they're busy the rest of the time. So, so it's, you know, people come back week after week for, for the social connections, for the community connections and, and all the benefits that go along with that. So not, you know, obviously you run 5k theoretically, you're going to get fitter, you're going to get stronger, lose weight, etc. cetera. But the friendships, it's about the mental health. It's about feeling good and feeling happy. Uh, you know, health, health and happiness. And our our global mission uh, has evolved. You know, the original mission was around uh, helping volunteers deliver a five kilometer run in any community that wanted one. That was the original mission, which was really uh, a call to action around growth. You know, we want we want to put more events out there, but we've realised that that's not the driver. The driver is is health and happiness. So the mission now is around creating a healthier and happier planet. Um and so it's uh, dramatically different in terms of what we focus on. Uh every decision we make now in the business is around is this gonna help us achieve the mission of a healthier and a happier planet? So it's a real driver for us.
2: There are so many running clubs out there and, and have been for many years. What is the you know, why is the what is the game changer that has led to Parkrun's incredible success? Because as you say, anyone can go for a run anytime. There have been plenty of running clubs that do create a community atmosphere, but there's something different about Parkrun.
0: Yeah, look, there's a lot of elements and, and, you know, Parkrun came from a running club. You know, Paul, the founder, uh, was a very active member of his local running club. And the reason he started Parkrun was because he had a sustained a serious injury, went out running Um, and, wasn't going to be able to keep training with his buddies the way he had been. He, I think it was 18 months, the, the doctors had said that before he was going to be able to train seriously again. So Paul didn't want to lose that connection and lose that friendship with his, his serious running club friends. Um, so he said, he said, right, well, I'm going to create an event and they're going to come to me. So rather than me going to them every Tuesday and Thursday or whatever the running club might've been, I'm going to create something and they're going to come to me on a Saturday morning. Uh, and Saturday morning was chosen specifically because Traditionally in the UK running clubs do Sunday long runs or events are on Sundays Saturday was kind of a free day in running in running terms. So that's why Saturday morning was was chosen Um, So so it's spawned out of running clubs and and lots and lots of people from running clubs come and do park run Uh, I think there's a number of reasons why I guess it's scaled differently to running the way running clubs do or running club events might do within their communities and you know one is obviously that it's it's completely free. Uh you know most running clubs have uh, some sort of membership uh requirement. Um so the fact that park run is completely free uh is a is a, a game changer in itself. Uh obviously that happens because we've got so many thousands of volunteers who are able to make that contribution. Uh and they you know the the one thing that we are really we see we see with volunteering at park run is that the volunteers gain as much from volunteering at park Runners to people who participate as runners and walkers so it's a it's a gain 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 that's the way we try and uh, promote it but um but yeah so the fact that it was free is, is a big thing and and look i think a lot of people are just intimidated by a formal club environment you know the the, the thought of signing up sign you know signing up a form you're getting asked about medical conditions and, and you know you might be getting asked about your what are your What's your PB for 10K? And, you know, all these things that all of a sudden you feel like this is something that's really serious and I don't want to use the word elitist because that's not my my feeling about running clubs, but there could be a, 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 a feeling where people are feeling like traditional running club structures are, are just a little bit too rigid, a little bit too form. Um so, so I think off the back of that, the sort of informality of Park Run, the ability to pick and choose when you come you know if you wake up on saturday morning and you want to go you can and if you if you don't you don't uh so the fact that you know the, the way you participate is all on your terms so the frequency you know how much effort you put in when you get there sometimes you might want to really run fast other times you might want to just run and have a chat other times you volunteer you know so it's all on your own terms and so so i think those those sort of elements has meant that parkrun i guess has been embraced not just by by people who are also in running clubs, but by those who would never dream of joining a running club. Uh, you know, they've, they've embraced park run and they've embraced, you know, running and walking and volunteering. Um, and off the back of that, you know, one of the things we're really proud of is we've seen so many people who historically would have never joined a running club, join running clubs, you know, because they've come to park run and they've started doing it and they, they've really enjoyed it and they've started to get a little bit quicker and then they think, well, what's next? What's, you know, this is great, but I'm getting faster and maybe I want to try a 10K or a half marathon and, and you know, they'll join a running club and, and go from there. So there's been a huge amount of people who've uh, come through park run and, and, and gotten a bit fitter and done other things. And, and you know, outside of running as well, you get, you come to park run and then you think, oh, you know what, I love being active. I'm going to sign up to play touch footy or netball or whatever it might be. So, so yeah, so we, look, there's a, a, a really uh, – it's a really interesting relationship between parkrun and running clubs. Uh, you know, we, we're very supportive of, of of running clubs coming and engaging and, you know, recruiting, recruiting people to join the running clubs from parkrun. Some running clubs feel threatened by parkrun because they – they feel that parkrun is going to start up and everyone in the running club's going to quit and just do parkrun. But we never see that anywhere. Uh, you know, we've done studies on it. Um, anecdotally, it doesn't happen. So, you know, uh, if anyone listening is a, a running club member and you, you're not yet convinced parkrun's good for your club, uh, I'm telling you it is. Uh, we've seen it in hundreds and hundreds of locations where running clubs have either started off the back of parkrun or increase their memberships off the back of Park Run, and even firsthand, you know, our local running club here in Ely Beach, where I live, the Whit Sunday Running Club, was, you know, I, I don't want to say it was floundering before Park Run, but it, it certainly wasn't growing. Um, but since Park Run started up here, we've had so many more people join the running club, and most of them are middle-aged, and most of them are women, most of you know, mostly middle-aged women who um, were looking to first of all be part of a community, and they found that with Park Run. Uh, and then from there, they, they're all almost like spurring each other on to greater heights. And, you know, I've got a friend up here, she's in her mid-50s, never run before doing parkrun, and she's doing the Melbourne Marathon in a couple of weeks. And uh, it's just incredible, like, to see the transformation in these people uh, off the back of initially finding parkrun, but then then looking for other things and joining clubs is uh, pretty amazing.
2: So do you think the, the parkrun mentality has the potential to be transferred to other sports, and if so, what, what are the key ingredients required to achieve success in this type of model?
0: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And it's one that I think other sports ask themselves regularly. And, uh, you know, I hear it from other people. They'll, they'll come and tell me that they were in a meeting and, you know, another sport is talking about how can we park run our sport. Um, and I haven't seen a, a, a successful replica, if you want to call that, that's been able to scale. There are some small examples of sports being able to try it. Um, swimming's an example. Uh, there's a, a few different uh, swimming groups down in Sydney that I'm aware of, uh, one in Bondi and one in Manly, uh, that are a similar sort of model to Park Run, where you, you turn up and you, you have a swim and you get a time and, and whatnot. Uh, Using swimming as swimming as an example, it would be really challenging to try and scale that up because I think of the safety issue of ha- having lots of people in the water. Um, so there's a big challenge there around that. Um, I've always been really supportive of other sports when they've come to me to talk about it. They say, you know, can we, can we have a meeting with you to talk about what you do? And we're very open with, with, with Parkrun about how we do it. And, you know, at the end of the day, healthier and happier planet is not just about us. It's about everyone so if we can share some of what we do and it helps other sporting organizations uh, do what we do then for us that's a win uh it's not a direct win for us but it's a win for the community so so it's it, it is a, it is a challenge for other sports to be able to do that you now running is is Works well. It's the simplest thing you can do. You don't need any equipment. You know, you don't even need shoes. You can just walk out the door and have a walk and have a run. So, meet up. So, so other sports will probably struggle. But I know I, I give a lot of um, presentations where um, we talk about our volunteering and how Parkrun has become so successful with engaging participants to volunteer. And um, and often when I'm giving these presentations, in the audience are Um, you know, operations managers and and volunteer coordinators from, uh, you know, state or national sporting bodies. Um, And there's some real basics that we do that aren't, you know, they're not rocket science, but they're they're things we built into the culture of what we do and particularly just around thanking volunteers. And, you know, our volunteers are thanked before every Event they're they brought up in front of the group and everyone gives them a clap and you know we encourage everyone to high five all the volunteers and say thank you on the way round and um, when we process our results all the volunteers get a thank you email um, so it it sounds like the basics but when I when I pose that to people from other sports and I you know I say do you actually formally thank your volunteers at the event and most of them look at me quite blankly thinking oh well no we don't they they just do what they do and then. The players do what they do, and it's quite a separate thing. Um, you know, often the volunteers are older, and the and particip- You know, the, the people playing the sport are younger, so there's this kind of generational divide as well. So, so, so I think in terms of trying to, I guess, lessons learned for, from from what we do for other sports. I, if you go right back to one of the simplest things, which all sports need, which is volunteers. I'd, I'd say, you know, th- these are the people who. Uh, you have to really savor and if, if their people are are, are going to volunteer you thank them you have to thank them and and you have to make volunteering um, enjoyable and, and and as as i said earlier what we what we do at parkrun we we promote volunteering as a as not something where you give up your time you hear this all the time about volunteering oh so and so gives up their time please thank them well we don't think that that's a really good way to frame volunteering because it makes it sound like a sacrifice like you're you're sacrificing your morning to put parkrun on for us you know you talk to the volunteers after they finish volunteering they feel bloody fantastic you know they've they've had a great morning they've volunteered with other great people they've learned some good skills um they've done something positive for their community they've been thanked by everybody so they walk away feeling wonderful so we promote parkrun as something where you're not giving your time you're gaining friendship you're gaining skills and you're 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 gaining happiness and so if if the volunteering roles that you're trying to get people to fill in your sport or your organization if they're not ones that are enabling people to gain something then you're doing it wrong you need you need you need to, you need to reshape that and that can just sometimes just be in the messaging. You know, it's the, the the role itself might be okay. It's the way you present it. You know, if you if you tell someone, ah, oh, you know, thanks for sacrificing your morning to come and volunteer. Well, straight away I'm thinking this is negative. It's like, ah, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm I'm such a martyr. <laughs> so. <laughs> But uh, people turn up and you say, you know, it's great you're here. We're going to have a great morning, you know, meet so-and-so and so-and-so. And, yeah, let's all go and have a great time. Then straight away I'm thinking, oh, this is awesome. So, so yes, yeah, so I think for, for other sports there's probably some lessons there. And, and, look, you know, we're still learning all the time as well. And the last thing I want to do on this podcast is sound like a know-it-all. But, um, yeah, it's, certainly that works for us.
2: The, let's focus a little bit on you now. People are becoming more empowered to lean into their vulnerability and have the important conversations. Yeah. You've faced a very challenging personal incident a couple of years ago, which made you take a close look at yourself. Are you okay to share that moment you found yourself at the Sundays Airport a couple of years ago?
0: Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's, you know, I'm, I'm very, very happy and, and proud to talk about it. Um, so I, uh, you know, as, as, as probably the listeners can probably pick up from, from The story so far, I'm a pretty kind of on the go person, um, running at uh, pretty high energy levels for most of the time. Uh, And, you know, ran my own business in university, ran my own businesses in in the UK, and then came back to Australia and and was starting up a a not-for-profit here with Parkrun. So we're looking at a period of almost probably 20 years where there was a fair bit of weight on my shoulders in terms of earning, earning money, you know, I, if, if I didn't make it happen, it wasn't just going to happen. And, you know, anyone who, any business owner will, will understand that, what that feels like. Um, so long period of time running, uh, you know, burning the candles at both ends, uh, a lot of pressure, a lot of responsibility, um, thrived on it. Like I absolutely thrived on it, loved every minute of it, but it came to a, a grinding halt when I, I was, um, must've been a 20, 20, 20. 16, I think I'm going to say. I can't even remember now, but uh, my, my my yeah, it was 2016. So my wife dropped my wife and kids dropped me at the airport up here in uh, in the Sundays at Proserpine Airport. I was flying down to Sydney for a, a routine meeting. Um, you know, nothing high pressure. I wasn't even public speaking. I get pretty nervous before I public speak, so there was no public speaking. It was just simply a couple of meetings. Um, she, I walked in the airport as I normally do. I sat down on the chair. As I always would, and then all of a sudden I was just overcome with, uh, well, what I now know was a panic attack. I, you know, my heart started beating furiously in my chest. Um, I became nauseous and dizzy and um, confused, scared. All of these feelings, and 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 I sat there. Um, at, at the time, the airport had no mobile service, so I couldn't even call my wife and say, "Hey." You know something's going on or can you come back and get me or whatever i, was, I just sat there and uh, i was early for my flight too which is something i never do i always get there you know right on the sort of nick of time and i, I was i think the, i was early for the flight and the flight was delayed as well so i basically had about an hour and a half to sit there in this airport where i just melted down i no one around me would have known anything was going on because i sort of sat there just with my, my head in my hands a little bit probably just looked like someone who was tired or hung um, but it was terrible and I didn't know what was going on. I'd never experienced anything like it. I'm, I mean, I'm not an anxious person, uh, in my day-to-day life. Um, but yeah, basically had this really bad panic attack. Um, I sort of battled my way to get on the plane. I was certainly contemplating not going cause I just didn't know what was going on. Um, but I got on the plane and. Uh, again, sort of just put my head in the in-flight magazine, buried it for, for two and a half hours for the flight down to Sydney and then got out in Sydney airport and just pretty much collapsed in the terminal. Um, rang my wife and just said, something's happened, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's happened, but something's just happened and it was, it was terrible. I felt like I'd run a marathon, I was exhausted I, and confused and scared, I think, were the, probably the, the emotions I was mostly feeling at the time because I just didn't know what was going on. And my, and my heart rate hadn't come back down, it was still just going mental. Um, so, you know, I had, I had a couple of days in Sydney, so I basically bluffed my way through a couple of days worth of meetings where I put on a brave face but felt just horrible. Um, and then made it back up to the Sundays, and, um, yeah, sort of my work, everything just came to a big halt. My, my wife and I just looked at what was going on. I think by that point I'd, I'd self-diagnosed a panic attack. Um, but the knock-on from that now was that I just felt all this anxiety. Um, you know, I couldn't kick it. I, I just, the heart rate was going crazy. I felt, you know, what is anxiety? What is what is that, what I now know as anxiety? Um So, yeah, we we just looked at – my wife and I just really talked through everything. We looked at how could this have happened to me, you know, of all people. Probably the least anxious person I knew was myself and uh, how could this have happened to me. Um, And as soon as we sort of started looking at the way I was living my life, it it actually became really obvious. You know, I I just – I had no – start of my work day and end of my work day. Life was a blur of action, things happening, doing work calls at all hours of the night, always being available to, for people to call me or, or email me, You know, answering emails at three in the morning because my phone beeped and all that sort of stuff. And look, what I'm talking about here, I can guarantee is not an isolated situation. You know, I'm sure there's lots of people listening right now who are nodding their head thinking, yeah, I do all those things. And, um, and so we just looked at that lifestyle component, you know, the way I was living my life and, um, and just made some big changes and some of them were really obvious. You know, even just as simple as the mobile phone just does not come in the bedroom. It it lives, it lives outside. Um, so, and I got a, I, I ended up getting a second mobile phone so that I had the personal phone and the work phone so that when I wasn't working, I could just switch the work phone off so I wasn't always available so yeah just the way I'd structured my life was just not healthy um, I thought it was fine but it wasn't it, it was it it wasn't fine it was it was hurting me uh, and you know my my body um, protested by having a panic attack and then and then anxiety um, so I had a I had a really supportive board and, and colleagues. I had I had one staff member at the time, and she'd only started about two months prior, um, so she got massively thrown in the hot seat. Uh, I had three months off work, uh, where I was able to just take stock of everything and have a bit of a break, um, learn a bit about myself and about what had gone on, and 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 really about the fact that I was never. You know I'm, I'm probably never going to be someone who is now free from anxiety because once you sort of feel that emotion when you feel those emotions you become a bit sensitive to it so um sometimes even when i'm like watching sport now and it's getting really tight I'm, I'm like oh i could it feels like i'm having a panic attack but i think everyone knows that feeling when your footy team's down by one and there's two minutes to go or whatever it's that feeling you know that that is the same feeling but um so so i had i had a significant time off work i um i I started meditation which is which basically I, I kind of tooled myself I tooled myself to be able to deal with anxiety so that's you know learning about it learning about what's actually going on uh, and, and then understanding what tools I can use to bring me out of it when it, when it, when it comes um, so yeah it was a really really challenging time um, you know I've Never, I've never had depression, so you know I didn't. It didn't spiral into depression. I think that's something that is can can certainly happen, and um, so I, I always had a, a really supportive network around me. Um, I've I've found that every person who I've ever told, uh, or, you know, shared my experiences with, has given me positivity and support in return. Um, so talking about it. Initially to my wife, and then to my friends, and then to my family, and then publicly, has been the best thing I, I could do. And I'm in a really, really good place now. As I say, this is this is 20, so 16 when it happened, so three, three and a bit years ago. Um, but I still feel symptoms of anxiety on an almost daily basis. Um, as I said, once you sort of feel it once, you, it's really easy to feel it again. Um, but you know I've got those tools to help me through it and most of the time almost all the time it's just like minor little blips where you know two minutes later I'm not even feeling anything so it's you know it might be periods of 10 seconds 20 seconds 30 seconds where your body starts to feel those feelings and then you and then you, your mind kicks in and you can help yourself out of it so so yeah really really tough time but as I said, I've spoken about it a lot publicly just like I'm doing now I've, I've done I've gone on national TV and talked about it I've written articles about it Um, I've had people reach out to me through LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, through email to who want to share their stories with me as well. And I think, um, some people really struggle to talk about it and, and by, I guess, me being so open, they've, I'm creating almost like a safe space for them to be able to talk about their feelings with me as well. So, so I, as much as I wish it didn't happen, um, now I look at it and I look at the positives that have come out of it in terms of me being able to share it, share my experience to help other people uh, and it's made me a better person too in the sense that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm much more empathetic now to other people who are in similar situations. Like I've reflected on periods of my life where I've worked or, 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 or had friends who were struggling with things that... I didn't know it at the time, but it would have been a mental health condition. And I probably wasn't as good a friend as I should have been in those times. Cause I just, I didn't know what, what was going on with them. They probably didn't know what was going on with them. Um, but now I can see it in people and I can definitely try and, um, you know, share empathy and, and, and help people as much as I can. So it's made me a better person. It's been a cha- It's definitely been a challenging experience to go through, but, um, and it's something that I'll always have with me, I think. But um, yeah, you just, um, you, 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 you pick up the tools and, you, and life goes on and that's kind of where I'm at now.
2: So from adversity yeah. always comes opportunity. So it's great to see yeah. that you have been able to share your experience to help other people and, and that's a very rewarding in itself.
0: It really is. Yeah, absolutely.
2: We all know smart people have great answers, but the best people ask great questions. When was the last time you did something for the very first time?
0: Well, as much as I probably would like to feel that thus far in this podcast, I've hopefully come come across as reasonably intelligent. Um, my answer to this is going to be that last night I watched the bachelor finale, uh, and actually was quite into it. So my, uh, my wife and I have been watching, watching the latest round of the, of, of the series of the bachelor. So I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure the public opinion of me on this podcast has probably just dropped. Uh, but, uh, yeah, watching, watching the bachelor finale last night was the, the first time I've done something uh, in, in a while. <laughs>
2: What is the one question that you would love to solve?
0: Well, I think the question I would love to solve, and there is no answer to this question, but it really does hark back to that mental health scenario we were just talking about. And um, uh, you know, just this week, um, it's been announced that GPs in Australia, the number one, uh, you know, illness that they're they're treating is mental health. You know, it's not, it's not, the, I thought it was going to be the flu when they started talking about it on the radio. I'm like, oh, it's going to be the flu for sure, but no, it's, uh, it's mental health. And so the question I like to solve is, is what's going on, you know, what, is everyone doing what I was doing? You know, is everybody just, uh, working themselves to the ground or is there something going, something else going on? Is, is it the way we, we live our lives in, in Western cultures? Is it, is it screen time? You know, w- w- what is it? So. You know, I, I, I would love to answer that question. Obviously, it's a, a question that has more than one answer, um, but it's, it's something that I
2: certainly personally am, am passionate about helping,
0: helping find an answer or helping
2: find a solution. It would be a, have a great impact on the world if you can solve that one. That was, that
0: was way better than my bachelor answer, wasn't it?
2: <laughs> How do you know when you're in a peak state of mind?
0: Oh well, yeah. I mean, it's it's the runners high, um, the flow. Look, I mean, it's something. something that uh, I probably get. There's probably two two times that I would feel that I'm in a, a sort of peak state, and one is during exercise, and that that can be if I'm in the gym. I do I do CrossFit uh, pretty pretty frequently, three times a week, and. You know we we train pretty hard in there and i think when you're in the middle of a session there you're in um you know you're in the zone so to speak and i feel like i'm in a, a bit of a peak state and i think the other time probably public speaking I, I i mentioned earlier i get a bit nervous when i do it but typically i then get up and i i, I go all right like I, I you know i've never actually you know stuffed up when i've been up there and i and i sort of when i am public speaking in front of large crowds I. I sort of sometimes you almost take a step back from your own body and you're you're watching yourself do it and you, and, and and whatnot so I think there are probably two, two scenarios where through the challenge that you're putting yourself through you know you achieve that peak state not always but but sometimes
2: and it's a good feeling <laughs> <laughs> you've got some remarkable insights and an incredible story there how can people learn more about what you do and what would be the best way for people to connect with you yeah, fantastic. Well, look,
0: I'm on all the the usual social channels. So, um, from a business sense, I, I get a lot of people contacting me through LinkedIn, and I think I think my LinkedIn profile is Tim Oberg 78, which is my, my year of birth. So Tim Oberg 78, and I certainly know my Twitter handle is Tim Oberg 78. So, I, I certainly love talking about all the things that I love. So, I, you know, I love I love engaging with people online about. Uh, anxiety. I love. Well, I don't love anxiety, but I, I enjoy talking about it. Um, uh, but you know, park whether it's parkrun or families or communities or health or you know, CrossFit, whatever it might be. Uh, you know, I'm I'm really happy to for people to reach out to me. I I, I do get a lot of students who are doing studies on the parkrun. They want to know more about it. So you know, if you're a student and you're and you're doing any research on parkrun, then absolutely reach out to me. Um, would love, would love to hear from you. So, so they're my personal handles. And then of course, in terms of actually finding out more about uh, parkrun, um, parkrun.com is the place to go. So, um, yeah, we'd love anyone who likes the sound of what we're doing to, to get in there and get involved and register and come on down.
2: Brilliant. We'll get those uh, links in the show notes as well. Tim, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Your energy is contagious and infectious. And so it's been very, very enjoyable talking to you. I've loved kind of learning about your early days and what was sort of going on in that and your, just your thrive in your ability to go, I'm curious about something. I just want to take something on and you jump in the deep end. You're, you're able to take your sort of your ideas of, I want to travel lots and create that into a business and, and make it a lot of fun. Like it just, you can tell in there that it was just enjoyable for you and you had a had a blast and yeah. but obviously there comes a, a time where there's just so much going on there that you just want to have some you, you want to settle into something else and the ability to find the parkrun has been a game-changer for you and not only you but many people around the world and I just want to say thank you for that work that you're doing when parkrun to engage people to to get off the couch get active and move more often and really connect in their communities because we tend to be on our own a lot more nowadays than we used to. So that community aspect is so, so important that we talked about coming from adversity. There's always opportunity and having that anxiety and panic attack has changed you and your life and the way you think about it. And now you are educating and inspiring other people. In different ways than just what Parkrun was doing so now you're going more into that mental health side of things which is so crucial nowadays where we see so many people that get caught in in the suffering in that space and they don't need to they can speak out they can talk to people about it and there is a lot of help to ensure that they can lead a great life and, and manage that so thank you very much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure and we look forward to seeing your journey continue In the space of developing communities and making people active and healthy
0: cheers craig thanks i've I've really enjoyed talking with you mate and um yeah i hope, hope some some of your listeners out there get enjoy it and get a good benefit
2: this week's active ceo performance tip is own your own mental conversation everyone has a commentator inside their head which owns the voice that you can easily overconsume your vision of the truth. The voice that is observing, criticizing your own actions, behaviors, and thoughts can blur your view of the world. You need to own your own thought chatter and ensure that it has perspective and clarity. The more we tell ourselves something, the more it becomes ingrained and leads to our own version of the truth. If that truth is negative by nature, then it can have a profound effect on your mood, opinion and ability to make clear and appropriate decisions. Be objective and look at home at how you can ensure the conversation is positive and open. Let's work on owning your own mental conversation.
1: Join the active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's nrg2perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG2Perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG2Perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.